you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. So, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic power and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, But have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. Um, well, good morning. Uh, my name's Mike. I'm a pastor here at Sit on a Hill. And uh, can I say thank you for, for your prayers, encouragement. I got a message from Heather this week saying, I'm praying for you. Thank you, sister. Thank you for reading God's word for us uh, this morning. Um, and as we uh, embark on a massive topic, um, this is a huge topic. They're all big topics, but I'm feeling particularly uh, that this morning is, is a big one. It's a sensitive one. Uh, it's one that I know is very personal Uh, for many of us, that our experience both inside and outside church um, has has shaped how we view this. Um, So I'd just like to just acknowledge that from the start. I'm going to pray now. Uh, There'll also be some people um, uh, uh, available to pray with you. Uh, Locke and Bronford will be able to pray with you after the sermon during the songs as well. If there's anything, it could be anything, could be related to this, could be unrelated, but we'd love to, to be praying with you. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you as a holy God who, who knows all and sees all. And as we embark on another massive topic, give us all humility. Help us see the beauty in your word. And may we be a people that are a city on a hill that reflect your love for us. Change us, shape us, and make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. Well, Australia has had a conflicting history when it comes to gender equality. On the one hand, you could argue that we have more equality uh, than ever before. Uh, Prior to 1966, that women were not allowed to work in government jobs once they were married. 
Uh, now, today, women make up 60% of the public sector jobs. In, in 2010, we had our first elected female prime minister, Julia Gillard. In 1972, um, equal pay only then was legally granted for men and women who worked the same jobs. Remember, my grandma used to say that if I was a man, I would have earned more for the same job working uh, as a seamstress in a factory. Uh, yet on the other hand, of course, that there's many cases where we see uh, inequality. We see one in three single women over the age of 60 in Australia are living in poverty. Shockingly, one woman a week dies due to domestic violence in Australia. Half of women have experienced sexual harassment. That feeling of, of unsafety that, that I know many of you have when you're walking back to your car at night, feeling like you're being watched, having to, to hold your keys between your hands, that's something that I and most men never really have to experience. Yet the inequality, it's not all one-sided. On the other hand, men, we don't live as long as women, four years less on average. Tragically, suicide is the biggest killer for all Australian men aged between 15 and 44, three times more likely men than women to take their own lives. There's unhelpful stereotypes of both men and women portrayed in the media and social media that are pervasive and can profoundly affect the core of our being. The curse and the consequences of sin run deep on this issue. Gender inequality, it's an incredibly complex issue. Uh, to illustrate, in 2018, Stanford University conducted a study looking at Uber drivers and the pay gap. Now, you can't select, uh, if you take an Uber, you can't select male or female. The, the factors are pretty even. There shouldn't really be a pay gap between men and women, and yet they found that, on average, male Uber drivers earned 7% more than women. There are three factors behind this. Firstly, that men were more likely to drive riskier, more lucrative routes, like you know, picking up drunk people from the valley late at night that would pay more. Uh, secondly, men completed their jobs faster. Maybe they were more likely to speed. Maybe they were more productive. Um, thirdly, in a, in a pretty transient industry, Uber drivers come and go, men typically stayed around longer than women. Uh, so they were able to figure out how to you know, play the game, how to, um, what times to work, places to hang around with, jobs to accept, etc. And then those three factors that were the main factors behind why this 7% pay gap exists. Now, people who, who lean right might be saying, you know, so what? You know, they're, they're all given equal opportunity. Uh, some drivers are rewarded for longevity, for being good at their jobs, efficient. That's what we want, right? While others who lean left might say that this study proved how real the gender gap is. Maybe women would be more likely to stay around if the company valued women, if they appreciated the differences that they bring. And they raise the question, why, why aren't safer drivers being rewarded rather than riskier drivers? Now, when it comes to a vision of equality, it really depends on who you ask. What do you actually mean by equality? Is it equality of opportunity or equality of outcome? Is it that men and women have equal value alone, or is it equality without distinction between men and women? Some of you already might be thinking that I'm not qualified to talk about this because I'm a man. This is a woman's issue, right? Well, gender equality, it's not just an issue for me because I live with three women. Just to clarify, that's one wife, two daughters. But... Uh, <laughs> But gender equality, it's really an issue for everyone. As, um, as Kate Jenkins, the Australian Sex Discrimination Commissioner, she says this, it's not a women's issue, 
It's a societal issue which every Australian and every Australian workplace can contribute to addressing. It's an issue for society, that one that we as a church need to speak into. But on one level, yes, like I really am not qualified to talk about this, and I don't pretend in the next 30 or so minutes that everything will be said on this issue. But you know what? I do know one who is qualified to talk about this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the only one who's qualified to talk about this. And I want us this morning to, to lift our eyes, to take off you know, the cultural contact lenses in which we view the world, and to see what Jesus has to say through his word. Now, some of you this morning might not yet be followers of Jesus. You're so welcome here. We love that you're here. Our hope is that you'd see something of the beauty, the truth, and the relevance of Jesus in the Christian story. And this morning, I could spend hours uh, talking about cultural analysis, and yes, that is important. We could spend hours hearing from each other's experiences, and yes, indeed, that is, that is very important. And I know uh, that this is a deeply personal uh, experience for so many people, and I know that no one comes to this topic from a neutral starting point. I know that sadly some of you have been deeply mistreated by men, and indeed, I'm ashamed to say, Christian men. Can I say from the outset that I'm, I'm really sorry about that? That's awful. It's not what God has for us. But there's hope. There's healing that can be found in Jesus. When we're approaching any topic in the Bible, particularly this, we can't just cherry-pick a verse or two in the Bible and say that's all that has to say, to build our whole theology based on one or two verses. And sadly, um, people, and often men, have used Bible verses out of context to suit their own agenda. Just because you quote a Bible verse, it doesn't mean you're right. Even Satan, we'll see, he quotes Scripture, often out of context. That's called spiritual abuse. God hates that. When my mum got married, uh, she had a Bible reading, uh, which she thought read by a Polish priest that she didn't really know, and, and it said this, a good wife is a silent wife. Now, it is, she assumed for, for many years, actually, only until recently, that that was from one of Paul's letters, uh, and only discovered years later that actually isn't in the Bible. But subtly, it was eroding her view of the church of Christianity and indeed Jesus. So what we're going to bring this morning is we're going to try to take a bird's eye view of Scripture. We're going to quickly go through what God has to say about men and women. I'm going to outline four ways in which churches approach this topic. And then I'm going to show you what I think is the most biblical and then some implications for us as a church, for our families and thinking broadly about society. Lots to cover, but keep your Bibles open. And uh, as, we, as we look through the topic of gender equality and really um, any other topic, we'll be looking at this, this, over this series as well, uh, we're going to look at it through this lens. I think there's a picture on the screen. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Now, this is God's story, which you can view any topic through this lens. Creation, that God has made the world good, but through sin, humans have messed it up, rebelled against God, and thus there are the consequences and effects of the distorted created order. However, through Jesus, God has redeemed the world. There's redemption. He's reconciling himself to humanity. And we live in what's called the last days, sort of between, you know, between three and four. We're awaiting the return of Jesus and the hope that he brings for humanity. 
Now turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, right at the start of the Bible, as we've, we've looked at a few times over this series, but it really is the foundation of everything as we look at creation. God had been creating plants and animals, and we see in verse 25, it's all good. But then we see the crowning glory of his creation. Come with me, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It says man there. It's referring to mankind. And God says, let mankind be like my image. I'm going to make them separate from the rest of creation. You know, we're different. We're different from plants. We're different from animals in that we reflect God's image, his character. We're created for eternity. We have a soul. We're made for a relationship with God and with each other, capable of reason and self-awareness. We're called to live out God's plan to rule the world under God as king, to look after and care for the world and his creation. Keep reading verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God here makes it absolutely clear. He creates both male and female equal in his image. There is an order and distinction, though. God says he created him, Adam, first with a different purpose to how he created Eve. After creating animals, God uh, took a look at the work and he said it was good. Uh, But in verse 31, uh, only after did he create both male and female did he say it was very good. The Bible has more than one creation story. Do you know that? Uh, People often object to the Bible in scientific terms, saying, look at the first chapter of Genesis, that doesn't fit my historical or scientific worldview. But we're not meant to read Genesis 1 or Genesis like a science textbook or a modern history book, giving all the details. Genesis 2 actually gives the same story, but from a different perspective as Genesis 1. Genesis 2 doesn't just flow on chronologically from chapter 1. There's poetry, there's color, there's symbolism. We've just read that God has created male and female in chapter 1, yet as we look at chapter 2, we start off just with male. What's going on there? There's no woman. God has given Adam, the first man, responsibility to try to carry out God's plan. He was to live and look after the land, also name all the animals, further emphasis that Adam, the man, was given responsibility to lead there. But yet there's a huge problem. The first problem in the garden is not sin. It's loneliness. It's incompletion. Adam, he's not able to fulfill the mandate that God has given him to look after the garden and, of course, to be fruitful and multiply. Come with me to Genesis 2.20. But for Adam, there was no suitable helper fit for him. Adam, he needs help. He looks around at the animals, which are good and helpful, but they're not suitable for God's intended purposes for Humanity. Some of you see the word helper there, and you're thinking, see, that's all the Bible says a woman is. Isn't the Bible sexist? Throughout the Bible, the word helper is actually used to describe God. In the Psalms, uh, helper, Isaiah, Psalm 33, 70, 115, 121 are some examples of of God being my help, my helper, my refuge, my rock. uh, The word helper is not belittling. It's not uh, subordinate. It's a beautiful word. Eve is the irreplaceable helper. 
she's fulfilling what Adam cannot do. So what is that? What does God do? Well, he records the first surgery in history. He, like a good surgeon, he puts a good anesthetist, he puts Adam to sleep. Uh, that's good. Uh, he takes one of his ribs out and makes a woman. God presents the woman to Adam. And then he bursts into song. If you've got a physical Bible, you might see this is, this is kind of indented. And he says, at last, cries out at last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's like Adam sees her and he's naming stuff for him. And he sees a woman, he's like, whoa, man. God ordains the first marriage. They become one flesh, naked and unashamed. God's purposes for creation are for men and women to be together, but not just in marriage and family. If you're single, like this is good news for us. We're not just marriage isn't all how men and women are to relate to each other, but we're to be together fulfilling uh, the, the, the mandate to be ruling and reigning and looking after, stewarding God's world, perfect harmony with each other and with God. However, it doesn't take long for man and woman to stuff this up. We see the fall. Satan, he tempts Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. He twists God's word and Eve succumbs. Adam, who's meant to be responsible for her, he has a very passive role. He sits behind the scenes. He goes to one side and just goes along for the ride. And so in Genesis 3, uh, chapter 9, Adam, he realizes he's naked. Shame covers over him and he hides from the presence of God. And God says to Adam specifically, he says, Adam, man, where are you? Where are you? He confronts Adam with his sin. How does Adam respond? Well, instead of taking responsibility, he, he blame shifts. He shifts the blame to Eve. The woman that you put, she did this. Eve blame shifts as well. She blames Satan. And here we see this first moment of true gender inequality, a conflict between man and woman, which continues to this day. Have a look at what God says in Genesis 3.16. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Australian theologian Claire Smith, she translates this as this, that Eve, she desires to possess or control him and instead will rule over her. She goes on to say, this is on the screen, that this is the distortion of the roles and responsibilities of women and men in Genesis 2, where the man is the firstborn, is given the law, and has ultimate responsibility in the garden. The woman, on the other hand, is created from the man and for him. She is his helper, not his leader. She is lovingly named by him and joins him in the new family he initiates. Instead of helper, she will seek control. Instead of loving head, he will rule. So man, he, man, he's meant to be the, the servant leader, but instead we see the curse, the, the brokenness of life. Ray Ortland says that the opposite of Adam's role as leader is male domination. The assertion of the man's will over the woman's will, regardless of her spiritual equality, her rights and her value. This is sin. This is the opposite of God's intended purpose. And we see the effects of this, don't we? The fracturing, fracturing of relationships, not just in marriage, but throughout society. Women have, have and, and do continue, sadly, to be treated as objects. Now, I went to an all-boys school, and it was typical Monday morning banter to talk about what you got up to over the weekend, and specifically what we did with girls over the weekend. 
porn. It's the, the playground where a lot of this plays out. Now, some of you might say, well, porn, it's just art. It's just an expression of choice where consenting adults are coming together, doing their thing. Some even argue that it's empowering to women. Fortunately, nothing could be further from the truth. There's much more to be said about this. Um, you can read about stories of ex-porn stars. I hate even using that word star, but uh, on websites like Fight the New Drug, really helpful drug, secular resource, but really helpful. And they give accounts of what it was like, um, the abuse they received and how they got there. It, it really is modern day slavery. One study they found that in porn videos, uh, here's gender inequality, one, uh, men, they reach orgasm 78% of the time, whereas women only 18% of the time. Shockingly, 97% of sexual violence in porn occurs to the female. Now, this, it affects pervasively how we view society, how society views men and women. Women are there for men's sexual gratification and can be treated as such. And men, often as well, are viewed as the one that can take control and it's their right to, to do with women what they want. That's the message, that's the gospel of porn speaking to us, and it and affects us all in subtle ways. But there's good news. Redemption. Looking to Jesus. Jesus offers something incredibly countercultural when it comes to gender equality. As we see in his life, uh, we see how he treats all people, both men and women, with dignity and respect. Unlike others in, in their culture, he talked directly to women. Think of the widow at Nain. He spoke even to non-Jewish women like the Samaritan at the well in John 4. He talked to women who had been adulterous and defended women from hypocritical and abusive, even religious abusive men saying, John 8, he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He touched and healed a bleeding woman, which while Jesus was on his way to heal another young woman, he allowed a prostitute to, to weep at his feet and wash his feet. And radically, he encouraged Martha to be less busy in the kitchen and to sit at his feet and be a disciple like Mary. The first eyewitnesses of Jesus were women, which as an aside, it's an incredible testimony to the validity of the resurrection. Now, if you're going to make up a story about a dead guy coming back to life who's going to save the world, you wouldn't headline it back in the first century as women were the first eyewitnesses, who at the time they couldn't even give a legal testimony in court. Yet God includes women as key pieces of his story. Dorothy Sayers sums up the life of Jesus like this. Perhaps it's no wonder that the women were the first at the cradle and the last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There's never been such another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized never made art jokes about them, who took their questions and arguments seriously. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about women's nature. It wasn't just that Jesus showed compassion on women that were vulnerable, though he did. He respected them, valued them as equals. Yet Jesus maintained an equal but distinct role between men and women. Equal, absolutely. He had men and women follow him. Women were his disciples, but within his disciples, he chose 12. Uh, the apostles that were particular would become leaders and founders of the church entrusted with the gospel. Now, these were all men. We've seen a brief story of creation for redemption uh, and how it pertains to men and women. Equality, yes, but distinction. 
Now, there's four ways we can make sense of this, four places typically that churches have landed. Uh, Now, all all four of these views have merit. They have something we can learn from, but I'm going to show where I'm convinced the Bible lands. And before we get there quickly, I'm going to show you the others. So on the far right, you've got Christian patriarchy. Uh, These would play a high view on the family and, and see a decline of society is really a decline of the family. But for Christian patriarchy, this is interpreted to mean that all women must be under the authority of all men at all times. First her fathers, then her husbands, and if her husband dies, then her son or pastor. Now, one commentator I read would argue that a man should not submit to a female police officer. Now, I don't want to just critique the extremes of this view, and there's something we can learn even from this view, but it goes beyond the realm of Scripture. This is not where we are as a church. Now, on the other extreme, on the far left, we've got Christian feminism. At its best, a Christian feminist is one who seeks to define and defend the equal rights of women in all spheres of life, whether that's politically, economically, socially, or spiritually. That's what it is at its best. However, in practice, what happens is the Christian feminist not just has a goal to flatten distinctions between men and women, but really ignore much of Scripture on their way to get there. They would argue that the, man is, that the Bible is written by men, for men. Therefore, we need to make sure it's not imposing its oppressive culture upon us. You know, we live in the 21st century. Uh, so much progress has happened. We need to keep going. Again, th- there's something noble about that. There's something even helpful thinking about that. But at the same time, like on the right, it goes far beyond the realms of Scripture. And what happens is they remove the Word of God from its highest place of authority. Now, thirdly, uh, move on in. You've got Christian egalitarianism. Now, this is the view that men and women are equal both in role and value. Now, a fully authoritative Bible supports the freedom of women under Christ without male supervision to follow their their God-given callings and special gifts of the Spirit And they would say, including leadership ministries of elder and lead teacher. Now, this might sound similar. What's the difference between these two? Uh, Well, while feminism comes out of a place of hurt and reaction, egalitarians, I I think they do seek the truth, and even from Scripture. Uh, Kate Wallace Nunnally says this, that we also believe that patriarchy and gender roles were not a part of God's original design, but were a direct result of sin. Since they are not mentioned in the creation of count until after sin is introduced. And so they would argue that actually this gender distinction only came post-fall. That prior to the fall, there was no such thing as headship or male leadership. There was a a oneness, an equality that also meant equal not just in value but in role. There was no distinction. They would point to leaders throughout the Old Testament, such as Deborah, who served as a prophet and a judge, Miriam, who led worship, and Esther, who was instrumental to the well-being of God's people. And we see in the New Testament, uh, active in the, many women active in the light of church, leading house churches, both fellow workers in Christ, including many women that Paul includes uh, as co-workers. And you can read Romans 16 to see a whole bunch of men and women serving together. Now you might be thinking, what's City on a Hill's position? Some of you are looking at that screen, and you're like, I know one. It's the one in a different color. That's right. Well done. Uh, now, look, for most of you, this won't surprise you if you've been around for more than a few months, uh, that this is where we land. Now, we don't land here because it's a, a reaction to the other views. 
we don't land here because it's comfortable, uh, because we want to be cool. We, we land here because we're convinced that this is what God's Word has to say. And as I very briefly outline this position, uh, can I just say that you're so welcome, like you're welcome here if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're, you're so welcome uh, to be part of our church life here if you hold one of the other, other three views. And I also uh, appreciate that I've gone through them very quickly. There's overlap between the views, there's nuance, etc. I'd love to, to keep having this conversation about that. But you're so welcome to be part of us if you don't land exactly here. Um, but can I encourage all of us, wherever we are, that we do cherish diversity, we do cherish wrestling with this together, and I want us all to be coming from a place of humility, a place of grace, where we keep God's Word at the center of this, where we're taking off the cultural lenses. All right, complementarianism. Now, this view says that men and women are equal but different. We're distinct but dependent on one another. We complement each other. As we've seen throughout creation, fall, redemption story, this is really how God made us. It's not a product of the fall, but it's part of God's good design. Uh, you can read a, a book by Claire, Claire Smith, God's Good Design, really helpful in unpacking more of that. I'll, I'll post that up on the Facebook group afterwards. But I'm going to rip the band-aid off, right? Talk about two words, popular words in our culture, right? Submission and headship. Now, you might see those words and hear them as dirty words. And, and sadly, as I mentioned before, they have been used and abused. But to clarify, these words only apply in specific contexts, not like the patriarchy would, would say that, all areas of life, not about submitting to female police officers, no, no. Primarily, it's really talking about the context of family, between marriage between a Christian woman and a Christian man. If you think about the word submission, it literally means under the mission of. Um, and that could be a bad thing if someone's mission is evil, is corrupt. But under a good leader, that's actually a beautiful thing. Uh, and actually, submission, we use that in our culture all the time. You know, Amelia, we submitted to Amelia this morning. I don't know if you realize that. When we came in, told us to stand, told us to sing, we are submitting to her leadership at that point. It's not that submission in and of itself has intrinsic evil. It's just a, a necessary tool that we use to, to, um, to, do, to run society. You know, we probably, hopefully, submitted to the traffic lights on the way in, etc. But I think the most helpful place to think about submission is Jesus himself, Jesus, though he was equal to God the Father, he submitted himself, put himself under the mission of God the Father. In the garden the night before he was killed, he said to his father, take this cup away from me, this cup of wrath away from me. In Jesus' humanity, he did not want to die on the cross, but he obeyed, he submitted, put himself under the headship of his father. Now this wasn't Cosmic child abuse, as Richard Dawkins would say. No, no, no. This is the greatest act of love in history. This is why we are here, church, because of submission. Jesus is the head of the church. God the Father is the head of Jesus. Headship, leadership, they're not inherently wrong. We need to survive. If you've got a boss at work, they're not inherently more valuable than you. I'm sorry if they treat you that way, but they've just got a different role. Sam Storms helpfully says this, that the principle of male headship should not be confused um, nor given any hint of domineering control. Rather, it is to be loving, tender, and nurturing care of a godly man who himself is under the kind and gentle authority of Jesus Christ. 
There's three realms really to think about this, uh, marriage, family, church, and society. Look at marriage and family. One, one pastor I heard uh, over a decade ago, and this line has stuck with me, that the hardest commandment in the Bible is for, Christ, sorry, is for men to love their wives, husbands to love their wives, as Christ loved the church. The hardest commandment in the Bible is for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved their church. I heard that as a single man. I've been profoundly impacted by that quote. Husbands, this is our call to be servant leaders, to be looking to Jesus, to look like him and lay our lives down for our brides, to be thinking about their needs above our own. You know, we don't get to play the submission card to get what we want. No, that's not the picture here. Let's talk briefly about another aspect, church life. Now, there's heaps to be saying here. You could, you could do a whole sermon series on this. But we, um, as a family of churches, uh, sit on a hill. We are actually in the process of trying to clarify these things. Uh, we hope that in coming months we'll put documents up on our website that outline our position in more detail. But let me just say this, that we at Sit on a Hill, we, and hopefully you've seen this, we value men and women serving together. We've heard even stories from, from Kylie this morning about her heart. We, we love this. Um, two of our staff here at the Brisbane team, two out of five are, are women. We have many female staff across our churches around Australia. Uh, Steph Judd, she's um, speaking at the women's event on Wednesday. She's part of the movement leadership team. Um, we've had women serve on the board. Uh, in fact, we're looking for more men and women right now to be serving on the board. The new church council will be open for men and women. More information coming about that. We've had fem- we have female service leaders, song leaders. We have fem- uh, female team leaders, heaps of them. And of course, women and men lead our gospel communities together. Uh, Mel Brown has done an amazing job uh, this year stepping into the team as our women's discipleship minister. I'm personally thankful for her input, uh, even her input thinking through these issues. What about preaching, you might ask? Uh, you might have noticed that we only have males, men, doing what I'm doing here on a Sunday morning. Now, this is not because men are better. You know, in fact, I think Sarah could have actually done a great job this morning. Uh, she's actually helped me profoundly. I'm going to get her up in a sec. She's helped me profoundly um, thinking about this. But it's about responsibility, not ability. God has infinite wisdom. And in his infinite wisdom, he has chosen to call men to be elders, to call not men, but certain men to be elders and pastors, having the responsibility to preach the word and shepherd the church. Hopefully, in light of God's story, his created order, that the pattern re-established by Jesus, we've seen that. There's other places you could go, which we don't have time to, but 1 Timothy 2 and 3, Titus 1, the qualifications of an overseer, an elder. It's not just any man. And we at Sidon Hill, we don't just invite any man to come up and preach. It's qualified men, 1 Timothy 3, very limited number. We, you know, uh, Grant and Michael are as lay elders that they've preached on occasion, but only after being put through a really rigorous process, filling out thousands of words of, of questionnaire, being interviewed, tested, put through the ringer. Why is that? Well, we value the pulpit. We value the preaching, the preached word. It's a significant moment of spiritual leadership. It's a place where you get to bring the word to bear on people's lives. It's more than a TED Talk. It's more than a lecture. Now, as I said, I'm going to invite Sarah up, uh, not to preach, but I thought it'd be helpful to hear from her. So let's make Sarah feel welcome. 
This is my, my beautiful wife, uh, if you haven't met her. Uh, but Sarah, so, I'm so thankful for you in, uh, in so many ways. Um, thankful for um, the way you shape me and, and uh, help me think through not just men and women, but really all areas of ministry. But Sarah, do you want to tell us uh, first, um, where have you seen gender inequality play out for you? Um, I think for me personally, I don't feel like in my life I've personally experienced a huge, dem- huge amount of gender inequality, although I'm sure I have been influenced in many ways. I definitely see it in society and I'm saddened and angered by it. Mm. Um, I think like one of the ways just personally people I know have been affected would be through domestic violence. Mm. Um, But yeah, also even I just remember like just straight out of school, friends with boyfriends and just navigating like porn culture, Mm. um, boyfriends going to strip clubs and just the effect that porn was having on relationships. Um, a lot of the time it was in relate, like relationships uh, where the guy wasn't following Jesus, but, yeah, have kind of seen the real negative effects there. Mm. Um, something that I'm pretty passionate about yeah. Um, and yeah. definitely makes me really angry, mm. if you want to hear me get fired yeah. up about Yeah, something. and a right thing to be angry. God is angry yeah. at sin, and that's a right thing that we as a church should be angry about. Um, Sarah, why don't you tell us, um, at our old church, um, you, you rocked up to our old church, and you had pretty different convictions about men and women. Um, you know, you were characterized, even by leaders at our old church, of, of the strong, as a strong feminist type. There was one man who, who was now a pastor. He, uh, he later admitted that he was too scared to be in like a small group, a gospel community with you. I don't want Sarah in that group. <laughs> Tell us about that. To be fair, he was younger than me. He was younger. He was a couple of years yeah. younger. But tell and us he's about not it. just a weak guy. No, there. Anyway, no. but yeah. just in his defense. But tell us about your strength then. What, yeah. what, what, oh, yeah. and also, this <laughs> yeah. was like way before yeah, yeah. you were before at church. Before this, yeah, 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 this was yeah. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. That probably paints me like I was right at the end, but I was maybe probably between yeah. the two of it. And I should say, at our old church, they often threw out to open question time mm. to put your hand up. And I was new and I was like, great. And I just asked questions all the time, maybe a bit um, forcefully. But yeah, so that's probably what got my name. Um, but I should say that the uh, pastors, like even the senior pastor of a church of thousands of people, uh, took the time to chat with me personally and in the congregation as I, <laughs> why don't you believe this about women? And mm. anyway, so I probably got the name rightfully. But um, mm. yeah, I think I probably came out of a place of reaction, definitely. Uh, reaction, maybe not to my own personal hurts, but just to, uh, like, I guess I see women as vulnerable and therefore can be exploited. And so how to protect women, I guess, was the good, the good aspect that I was coming from. But I think I hadn't been in church for years when I came back to this church. So I think just a huge part of my personal testimony was I was so much more confident in what I thought the Bible said than what I actually knew. Mm. So a big part for me was actually just asking questions mm. and figuring out what the Bible actually had to say. Mm. I think I did genuinely have questions more than angry comments. Mm. I probably just came across very forceful, mm. but partly that's my personality, partly that was context that I was in mm. and not being in church for years, mm. but growing up in a Christian family and thinking I knew a lot. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about how your views of men and women changed over the years? Yeah, so I think I like I would have thought of the idea of complementarianism as like wrong and oppressive to women. I also probably didn't really understand it. I wasn't quite sure, I think, exactly where I landed and I had like a deep feeling that uh, 
God does love men and women equally, but I didn't quite see how the Bible reconciled that. So I really wrestled with God and in prayer and with scripture on my own, but with others with that. Um, it was a really helpful process for me. And I've actually done that since with a bunch of other women. Hmm. Um, yeah, also as well, like my pastor gave me some helpful books to read about just feminism and how that's affected just us, like culturally and how we approach things. And yeah, I think just in terms of feminism, I definitely like appreciate many things about feminism, what it's done for society in a positive mm. way. But I also am convinced now that feminism actually has been really toxic in a bunch of ways. So I feel like I'm both an advocate, but also a severe critiquer of feminism now. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, in terms of the Bible, like my biggest thing was recognising that I didn't know the gospel. Um, I was hit ultimately with the gospel at that church. Mm. So it was actually coming to sit under the authority of the Bible. But yeah, coming from a place of actually recognising who God was, what Jesus had done for me um, in light of my sin, which is what had, which is what had really struck me. So mm. the biggest thing for me um, in terms of thinking about men and women was figuring out the authority of scripture, whether I was willing to submit to it, mm. even if I didn't like it. And I think that's a good place to start. Like, mm. even if you don't like what scripture says, are you willing to submit to mm. it as God's word mm. regardless? Yeah. So that was probably the first place I started um, with that. But then also coming to realise that the truth of the Bible um, is beautiful mm. and good mm. and for our flourishing and actually I've never felt so comfortable and so not at war within myself and with God and what I think um, now that I would rest in a complementarian view, not that I don't have any questions or nuances in that. Um, but yeah, I've never felt more peace, um, more valued. Um, being in churches since that have held that view, I've mm. never felt more, mm. more valued, yeah, as a woman, mm given equal opportunities in a bunch of things. I feel like I'm rambling. No, no, it's right. One more question. Uh, last question. Uh, what, what advice, I mean, you've touched on it already, but what advice uh, would you give to, to someone who um, uh, is maybe wrestling with, with some of these things, these categories? Yeah, I think ultimately if you are a Christian, if you're someone who is wanting to follow Jesus, uh, just think about where you hold the authority of the Bible. Um, like, you know, if the Bible isn't your ultimate truth, you're just going to be like, you, you will be directionless because you can find answers anywhere else. But the Bible proves itself to be ultimately authoritative. There's many things that you can do if you want to investigate that. But uh, yeah, as I said before, like, are you willing to submit to the Bible no matter what it says? Like, that's what something I was challenged on early on. And I was really challenged by that. Um, but again, like, can I encourage you? I think there is beauty and freedom and truth to be found there. I'm convinced. Mm. Um, so look into these things. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Mm. Don't be afraid to stick up your hand, to mm. come and hash things out with, um, t you know, pastors at the church, women at the church, mm. gospel community leaders, um, getting God's word, wrestle mm. with it, call out to God, cry out to God. There's truth to be found. Um, yeah, and then I think there's also obviously implications for then how we engage in society. I almost think that's like a whole nother thing as mm. well. But I do think for me, like having a complementarian view, it doesn't take away my desire for justice. 
Um, I think it really does push me towards supporting policies that uh, protect women and, uh, yeah, I guess are for their good. Um, yeah, your, the your theology does influence uh, your politics, but I think it is really important to have that theological base. Great. Hey, let's give it up for Sarah. Thank you. That's so helpful. Um, and uh, ladies, come along Wednesday night. Um, there'll be question time. Uh, so the questions that I'm sure I've raised, uh, direct them at Steph. No, direct them at me as well, but, but there'll, be, there'll be question time as well. Um, just to very briefly wrap up, um, tie a few threads together. We, let's be a church that's living out our name, sitting on a hill. Jesus offers a better story. Let's show our city and the world that. You know, we can only really make small changes of influence for our city. We can advocate for the rights of the oppressed. Uh, we can care for the marginalized, stand up for injustice. But if nothing else, the Bible should show us, that shape our view that, that God has a heart to protect the vulnerable, which sadly often means women. Uh, I read this week that 50% of organizations in Australia offer domestic violence leave. That's great. But it means that half of them don't. Uh, maybe could you, could your organization implement that as a policy? Does your workplace have a sexual harassment policy? And does the culture reflect the policy? As a church, let's be a community of men and women shaped by the word, dependent on each other. But we can't expect the world to be living under this authority. There's a separation between church and state. Everyone is image bearers of God. Everyone is precious to Him. Uh, men, we're called to, to treat women as sisters, not our subordinates. Would you say that comment? Think that thought, men, about your sister. Rather, let's uphold them. Let's honor and value them. Pray for them in church and in the workplace. Likewise, women, treat men as brothers with our words and our actions. Men are not the root of all evil. Rather, let's uphold them in honor and value them. Pray for them in our church, families, and workplaces. But church, there's greater hope as the band comes up. I began by looking at the, this framework of the Christian story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Let's look forward to the hope. Um, and there'll be people there to pray with you during these songs as well. I'll just remind you that. But men and women, there's beautiful gospel hope. In Revelation 21, turn to it right at the end of the Bible. And I'll finish with this, that John talks about the church being washed, being presented like a beautiful bride. Um, John says this, that this is the vision he sees. I, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. In heaven, the divisions, the domestic violence that between men and women will be gone. God will wipe away every tear, every hurt, every pain, every disappointment in this life that we experience. We can't fix the world, but God can. Let's cling to him. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have spoken. We thank you that you sit above time and space and have made the world according 
to your plan. Help us to see and marvel at the beauty of your word. We do pray for the men here. We pray uh, that we would be men that seek to model Christ, to look to him as our saviour, to seek to live a life that looks more and more like Christ each day, treating everyone, including women, with dignity and respect. We pray for the women. We pray too that they may see Christ and see him as uh, the only man that is worthy of, of, of complete Self, of complete trust, complete salvation, uh, complete forgiveness, complete restoration, complete uh, ability to fix all things. I pray that we wouldn't trust and put our hopes on other men, nor would we see them as the root of all problems. Lord, I pray for men and women together. May we be a community, a city on a hill that reflects your light, your love to the world. Would you protect the vulnerable, the marginalized, uh, bring about peace and protection in our city? And would we live in a way that is countercultural so that others would see our good deeds and give you glory? And I pray this all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.